2009, November 3rd. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 28, The Galilean Moons of Jupiter. So in the last couple of days, we've talked about light. We're talking about life in the solar system, and we looked at the planet Mars the other day. And Mars is probably the one place in the solar system where we are most likely to have thought that life would have arisen. It's been deeply embedded in the popular culture that Mars is the place to look. But one of the big surprises that's come out of this golden age of planetary exploration, particularly the exploration of the outer solar system, is that our view of where we should be looking for life may in fact be a little bit too provincial. We've thought too much in terms of habitability being in terms of the amount of sunlight available for power. And we've thought about it in terms of water existing only in the inner solar system. In fact, when we begin to explore the solar system, we find sometimes that our way of approaching problems may in fact be as much guided by our prejudices as by our knowledge. And that is perhaps nowhere than in probably one of the most unlikely places to be looking for life, and that is on the cold, icy moons of the outer solar system. So today we're going to talk about the Galilean moons of Jupiter. These are the four large moons of Jupiter that were discovered approximately 400 years ago, in fact this very winter, uh, by Galileo Galilei with his small handheld telescope. They've been explored in some detail by a series of spacecraft flybys, particularly by the Galileo Orbiter, which has been able to get close-up views of all of these worlds, and of course it looks like some of these are going to be the subject of future exploration as well. The Galilean moons of Jupiter are heated by tides from Jupiter. In some sense, we should not have been surprised by this, but we were anyway when the first good pictures came back from Voyager. The four moons are Ganymede, Callisto, Io, and Europa. Ganymede and Callisto are old, geologically dead worlds. They have rocky mantles over icy cores. Their surfaces are many billions of years old, as judged from the cratering record. These are also the two outermost moons of of the four of the Galilean system. The innermost of the Galilean moons, Io, turns out to be tidally melted inside. It's actually been squeezed by the gravity of Jupiter on on the elliptical orbit it follows around Jupiter, and in fact is volcanically active. It is, by all measures, the most volcanically active world in the entire solar system, as we'll see. And finally, the real big surprise was Europa. Europa was always known to be kind of bright, but what we didn't realize was how unbelievably young its surface was. It has virtually no craters. There's a few, but very, very few craters on the surface. It has a very, very young ice-covered surface, and there are indications that there is, in fact, a substantial amount of liquid water below that surface, perhaps as much as two times the mass of our own oceans on the Earth. This makes it, in fact, as we're going to see towards the end of lecture, quite surprisingly, the most promising place we should be looking for life elsewhere in our solar system besides the Earth. So today's topic is the Galilean moons of Jupiter. Here's a family portrait of the four Galilean moons of Jupiter. These are images taken by... Uh, passing spacecraft. These are primarily from a combination of the Voyager and the Galileo spacecraft. They are in order of size, Ganymede, Callisto, Io, and Europa. Their scales run from diameters of about 5,300 kilometers for Ganymede down to a little over 3,000 kilometers for Europa. For comparison, there is the Earth's moon. So these are very large, differentiated bodies. They are in only reason they are not dwarf planets is because they orbit the planet Jupiter, not because they, in fact, orbit the Sun. So the problem with the Galilean satellites of Jupiter is they're big, and they're very they're they're going to have a lot of details that are going to be of interest to us here. Now, if we look at the orbits of the Galilean satellites, their order from the inside is Io, Europa, Ganymede, Callisto. If you want to remember that, it's I eat green cows. It's the only way I can remember it. 
They all orbit in the same direction in a plane. Now, they are slightly elliptical orbits, although I've drawn them here as circles just because it's convenient to do so, and I've not drawn them in their relative scales, but they are in the proper scaled positions relative to the, the diameter of Jupiter. So the first thing to notice from this picture is the orbits are relatively small compared to the diameter of Jupiter. These are pretty tight and close in. Io, the innermost of these moons, takes only 1.8 days to circle the planet Jupiter. Europa takes 3.6 days. That's not an accident. It is, in fact, exactly two times the period of Io. Ganymede, next out, circles Jupiter every 7.2 days. Again, that's no accident. That's four times Io's orbit period, or two times that of Europa. And then finally, making a somewhat bigger jump out here is Callisto, which takes 16.7 days to orbit. And that's not an even multiple of anything, as near as we can tell. So the first thing that we notice is that this is not an accident. The ratio of the orbits of the Galilean moons Io, Europa, and Ganymede from inside to outside are in the ratio of 1 to 2 to 4. That's what's referred to as a Laplace resonance. It's an actual case of where there's a gravitational interaction between these moons that actually locks their orbits into step with each other. We call it an orbital resonance. It's a very very striking effect that, in fact, is repeated elsewhere in the outer solar system. Orbital resonances are very, very important for, if you will, dynamically sculpting both the solar system at large and the moon system seen around the giant world. The innermost of these two, Io and Europa in particular, are close enough that they are going to be strongly affected <coughs> by tides from the gravity of the immense planet Jupiter. And it's these tides that are going to be of great importance to us. The tides play two roles in this story. The first of them is the tides are the main reason why these resonances exist. They actually are driven into these, into these orbits. The orbits are actually slowly moving out slightly, or just a little bit, and have gotten themselves trapped in these 1 to 2 to 4 resonances. This is a sign of dynamical evolution of the system. But more importantly, the fact that there are tides in the system means there is energy exchange. In this case, orbital energy exchange, as well as heating energy exchange between the rotation of Jupiter, the ultimate source of the energy, and both the orbital motion of the moons <coughs> by small changes causing them to push into these resonances, but also by an effect we refer to as tidal heating. And that's going to be the effect that, again, we should have kind of expected it. <coughs> All the indications are there, it would have been important, but how important was something left of something of a surprise till we got the spacecraft visits? Now, We've seen this diagram a lot. This is the diagram showing the distance from the sun on the, on the horizontal axis and the mass and Earth masses on the vertical axis. And we've plotted, of course, all the planets, the moon, the Galilean moons of Jupiter. I've, I've put a red square around. Titan, the big moon of Saturn. Triton, the big moon of, of uh, Neptune. The dwarf planets, Pluto, Eris, and Ceres. I've dropped, this is an older plot, so I don't have Maki, Maki, and, and Haumea on there, but those are those two points down there the frozen Kuiper Belt orbits and objects and the asteroids. Now remember that we talked about what the interior heat of a planet was. That's these gray bands. If you're, And we've also talked about the ability, I'm sorry, the ability of a planet to hold onto its atmosphere is the gray bands. So if you're too small for your gravity's too low to hold onto an atmosphere of any gases, you fall below in this lower gray band. And you can see that the two smaller moons of Jupiter, Io and Europa, fall into the sort of ambiguous can't hold onto an atmosphere zone, but the two larger moons, in fact, might be able to hold onto an atmosphere, even though, as it turns out, they don't have an atmosphere. They're kind of right on the borderline. Uh, if you're up in the big band up here, of course, your atmosphere is too heavy. This yellow band, that's the order I thought I was drawing them in on the computer this morning, 
Below this line, in the present day, you expect your interior to be cold. Now this, below this line, you expect your interior to be cold line, actually has buried in it two assumptions, which I need to make clear. The first of these is that the body is essentially a mostly rocky silicate-like body. It's a terrestrial-like planet. The second is the assumption that the only source of heat that you have to come into play is the original heat that you had at the time of formation. Now we know that that gets modified somewhat by the presence of radioactive elements in the Earth. In the case of the Earth and Venus, they will stay hotter longer than if they just simply started out hot and were just cooling passively for their, for their entire history. These are not passively cooling objects. They have radioactive elements inside of them. But the smaller you are, the fewer radioactive elements you have, so the less non-passive heating you end up with. So if just by that measure, with those assumptions, and we have a reasonable guess that the Galilean moons are relatively mostly rocky because of where they land in the, in the solar system, mostly rocky stuff on the inside, is that these things should be completely cold in the inside. They should have frozen up, and therefore they should not be geologically active. But as we're going to see, that in fact is not the case. And of course... The last piece here is, this is the band in the solar system where we expect liquid water at one atmosphere to be present. And in fact, we see the narrow band of liquid water should be here. This is not a place where you would even imagine to be looking for liquid water. They should be cold, geologically dead worlds, far enough out in the solar system that there's no liquid water. It's all ice. Okay, so we were kind of mostly wrong in a couple of places, but we're mostly right too. If we look at Gal Ganymede and Callisto, the two biggest moons of the Galilean system, the two outermost of the four of the Galilean moons, we find from the spacecraft observations, which can measure their gravity very accurately by seeing how much the spacecraft's motion is deflected by the gravity of these moons. We find, in fact, their masses very well. We know their sizes, so we know mass divided by volume is the density. And we find the mean density is about 1.9 and 1.8 grams per cc for Ganymede and Callisto, respectively. Remember that rock ranges in density from about 3 to 5 grams per cc. Pure liquid water at standard temperature and pressure is 1 gram per cc. And ice, pure water ice at standard temperature and pressure is also a little bit less than 1 gram per cc. So whenever you see a number sort of in the 1 to 2 grams per cc range, you know right away you're dealing with an ice plus rock mixture. You've got low density ice mixed up with high density rock, and the average kind of lands in between. So not surprisingly, we expect that the interiors of these are deep and differentiated. They basically should consist of ice mantles over rocky, icy cores. The rock now plays the role that metals does on the Earth. It's the heavy stuff that sinks to the bottom. The ices float up and to the surface. And of course, you get a continual accumulation of ice because you're out in these parts of the solar system that during the formation of the solar system, you can have ice volatiles condensing out of the solar nebula. And so not surprisingly, we find ourselves with sort of rocky, icy cores. It's kind of a mix in the middle. On top of that should be pretty much mostly water ice with a couple of other ices mixed in. Now, these things are f actually seem to lack internal heat. They are geologically inactive. And the way we can tell that is we can look at their surfaces. We can find the surfaces are very heavily cratered, and we can roughly estimate the ages of the surface by the, no by the density of craters. A heavily dense, highly dense, heavily cratered surface is ancient, a younger surface will have had a lot of the older craters filled in by geological activity of whatever kind. And so younger surfaces have fewer craters per kind of cubic kilometer. And that's the way we tell the dates of surfaces in the absence of radioactive age dating of actual rock samples. 
So if we take a close look, for example, at Ganymede, Ganymede has the distinction of being the solar system's largest moon. In fact, it would be a very healthy dwarf planet all by itself. In fact, it's, it's kind of getting up into Mercury size. It would actually probably be a planet if it was out orbiting by itself, not trapped in the orbit of Jupiter or in the orbit of the gravity of Jupiter. Its density is, a, is about 1.9 grams per cc, which tells us we've got a thick ice mantle over a rocky core. It's got a kind of grooved terrain here. So you can see where there have been past flows of the water ice coming up from the interior and repaving the surface. Some of these grooves are quite big. They're about 10 kilometers wide and, be, and sort of icy canyons about 300 meters deep. But if you count the number of craters across that grooved terrain, you find it's actually at least two billion years old. So whatever geological processes were occurring on the planet, on the, planet, on the moon Ganymede, it pretty much ended about two billion years ago. That's the youngest terrain we can tell from the crater density. And you can also see the, the surface of this moon. It's sort of got this dark brownish patina. This is an attempt to get a little bit of true color, what your eye would see if you were flying past Jupiter in a spacecraft. It's not going to be perfect, but we, you know, we use a little computer enhancement to bring it up. But that kind of brown and dark is about the right vision you want. This is probably organic stuff and carbon-bearing carbon stuff of which there's a tremendous amount in the outer solar system. And so we expect what we're seeing is the steady accumulation of this patina of junk over the last two, three, four billion years. But you'll notice where there have been relatively fresh impact craters, it's very, very bright. And so think about ice. Think about your experience of ice on Earth. You know, you get a nice fresh snowfall, fresh snow is all nice and white. And imagine the snow sitting by the side of the road. A few Coda buses come by and pretty much it gets to be sort of black and icky, especially as it begins to melt and you get this sort of black patina of crap on the surface of the snow. But if you walk up to it and hit it real hard, not when it's mush, but when it's still frozen, you bust through that thin patina layer and you bring up the fresh ices from below. And you get these bright shiny spots on top of the otherwise dirty ices. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing this patina of dark junk on top of otherwise pretty pure ice, or you know, somewhat contaminated ice, but not too badly contaminated. So we're seeing the sudden change in what we refer to as albedo, the relative reflectivity. This low albedo dark stuff is about as dark as the moon in terms of material and the darker spots, but then this really, really bright stuff is almost as bright as new fallen snow. And it represents material being brought up from the inside. But now because it's an icy body, it's water ices being brought to the surface, not dirt and rock, like what you get when you hit the moon with a, with a, with a, with a meteorite. Here's a close-up look at this uh, grooved terrain. You can see what I was saying about the small impact craters. There's always sort of this general you know, hitting of constantly hitting of meteors on this and rocks on the surfaces of all the solid bodies of the solar system. It gives us an approximate way to date it because since about the last 3.8 billion years ago, the end of the epoch of heavy bombardment, up to about 2 billion years ago, the rate of impacts is roughly constant. So you can, it's actually a pretty good clock is all it goes. Out here is older terrain. You can see lots of old overlapping craters. In fact, they're all sort of kind of jumbled together and you can barely see them out here. But then you'll notice the grooved terrain, whatever's gone in there has paved over this older stuff and then has only a few craters around. And again, the, the, the cratering rate estimates give you a terrain ages of around 2 billion years old. So this stuff is really ancient, but it's about half the age of the solar system when you put it in relative terms. So this, what we're seeing here is probably water flows, liquid flows, 
very briefly, probably caused by either internal, leftover internal heat that's melting the water. You punch through with an asteroid or something else comes on. The stuff flows and then quickly refreezes. So that's what we're seeing here. We see a lot of this in the outer solar system. We see this evidence of kind of what I call ice volcanism or ice repaving. Remember, in the inner solar system, the liquid that comes up to repave the surface is liquid rock from the inside mantles of like the old Mars, Earth, Venus, and places like that. So we usually think of as volcanism as liquid rock. When we get to the outer solar system, the rock of the outer solar system is mostly ices. It's a really different way of thinking about these worlds. And interestingly, it's not what was in our consciousness until we really got out there and saw it for ourselves, and it became obvious what was going on. Okay, very quickly, Callisto, the other moon of, uh, outer moon of, uh, this is the outermost moon of the Galilean system, is very old, very heavily cratered, and covered with very, very dirty ice. It's a pretty dark world, although you can see the fresh craters, which are bright material brought up. The indication from the cratering rate and the relative lack of large-scale features on the surface of Callisto suggests that this surface we're looking at is basically a primary crust, a primary ice crust that's about 4 billion years old. So it hasn't seen any geological activity since the end of the epoch of heavy bombarding. Its surface has been basically shaped by cratering. It's a primary crust, just like cratering has done the primary shaping of the crust on the moon. So it too is an ancient world. It's kind of neat looking close up. This is some Galileo pictures. You can see now what this patina looks like. You can see the bright ices kind of coming up amidst this sort of massive accumulation of dark crap. And you can see how much over all the overlapping craters and some relatively recent high impacts here. Jupiter has got a tremendous amount of gravity and it kind of sucks up anything that comes past. So the cratering rate's a little bit higher in the Jupiter environment than it is out in the regular solar system. But again, you can see bright material brought up, and this darkness is really a patina on the surface. And I like this picture because if it wasn't for the craters that kind of gave it away that this was a surface of some kind of outer moon of the solar system, you'd think I took a close-up photograph of some snow on the side of High Street in the middle of February, about five days after a big snowfall. That's exactly why I love that picture. It just reminds me of dirty snow. And that, that really is the image you want to get in your mind. Dirty ice, dirty snow is what the surfaces of these things look like. So that's Ganymede and Callisto. Now remember, way back we talked about what makes the interior of a planet hot. You'll remember that Earth and Venus are very big. They still have hot interiors due to a combination of leftover heat. They're slow to cool off and radioactivity sort of giving them a little secondary heating to keep them going. Whereas Mercury, Moon, and Mars have cold interiors in the present day, but in the past they were liquid. If I just use this analogy, I would expect that the insides of all these planets are old and cold. But the big difference is the two innermost moons especially, and to a lesser degree the outer moons as well, are getting to partake in another form of heating called tidal heating. Turns out the interior heat of the Galilean moons is determined not by their size, but by their proximity to the planet Jupiter. The closer you are to the planet, the hotter your interior because the greater the tidal heating. So we have an interesting inversion, if you will, in the Galilean moons. The two largest moons are the furthest away from Jupiter and they're the coldest and oldest surfaces. The two smallest moons are closer to Jupiter, subject to heavy tidal heating, they have the youngest, most geologically active surfaces. It's a complete reversal of what we saw in the interterrestrial planets because of this role of tidal heating. Well, the way tidal heating works, your book has this picture, and it's a, it's a pretty simple picture to look at. I've exaggerated all the scales here. Let's look at the, at the moon Io. 
Okay, it's the hottest of the moons of Jupiter. It's on a roughly elliptical orbit. It takes about 1.8 days to circle around Jupiter once. That means it gets close on one side. Orbits are ellipses with, in this case, Jupiter at one focus. Kepler's law as applied to Jupiter. The tides of Jupiter are basically caused by the difference in gravity force on, of Jupiter from the front side of Io to the back side. So it causes Io to stretch along the sort of Jupiter-Io center line. You get the sort of tidal bulge going in both directions. Now it turns out that in an or elliptical orbit, you orbit faster when you're close, slower when you're far away. When you're far away, the difference in gravity is less, and so the tidal bulge is less. Again, I've, I've, I've exaggerated the scale here to show the effect. So as you move around, you slightly turn through your own tidal bulge, or you try to turn through your tidal bulge. But this is a tidal bulge in solid rock and ice. And then you get from a from big bulge when you're close to a small bulge. And so Io, every 0.9 days, every day, it's either getting squeezed or released. Squeezed or released every day. Well, take a tennis ball sometime and squeeze and release and squeeze and release. What's going to happen? The tennis ball is going to heat up. Same thing happens on Io. This rhythmic flexing of the physical body of this 3,000 kilometer moon. I mean, the whole moon is going crunch, stretch, crunch, stretch every day for millions of years, billions of years. And so the result is you basically tidally heat. You transfer rotational energy from Jupiter ultimately into heating the interior of Io. So much so that you actually melt the rock inside of Io. Europa, the same way. It's a little further out, so the effect is less, but it's actually enough to heat the interior and keep it hot longer than it would have stayed if it just simply started with heat of formation and just passively cooled for the last four and a half billion years. So tidal heating is this extra way of giving you heat far from the sun or when you are a small object. It has nothing to do with your size, per se. It has to do with your proximity to the planet that you're around. The closer you are to the planet, the bigger the tidal field, the bigger the tidal field, the bigger the effect of heating. Especially if you're on elliptical orbit, that just makes it better. And Io is trapped into an elliptical orbit in part by this funky 1 to 2 to 4 resonance kind of enhances the effect. So you get these additional gravitational tugs from the other moon, and you set up basically this gravitational heating machine. So the result is that you end up with Europa, which are mostly rocky, high-density moons, densities of 3.5 and, and 3 grams per cc, respectively. These are heavy bodies, mostly rock, a little bit of ice is on their surface, but you have a great deal of difference. Io has a mostly rocky crust. It has a molten mantle because of all the tidal heating, and as a consequence, has a lot of active volcanoes. Europa has a lot more ice. It's a lower density, so I've got to dilute the rock with a lot more of the low-density ices, so its density drops to down to about 3 grams per cc. Seems to have an icy lithosphere on top of a uh, rocky core, and that there is a good chance, as we're going to see in a moment, that Io may in fact have a deep water liquid ocean underneath the ice cap. And we'll see that in just a second, due to the fact of tidal heating keeping it warm enough for the ice to melt into a liquid. So let's take a quick look at Io. Io is the innermost moon. It is being tremendously tidally heated by, by the action of Jupiter's tides. This heating makes the interior molten, and in fact, for this little tiny guy to be so molten on the inside makes it the most volcanically active place in the entire solar system. This, the interior is mostly a combination of molten silicates and sulfur. That's what gives it its orangish, yellowish color, our sulfur compounds. You can actually see one of the volcanic plume sets here and here. 
These are actually, these rings that you see here are basically dark material being belched out of the middle and then falling down on this airless moon and forming these big rings. We actually do see active eruptions going on all the time when we look at Io. We see pools of molten sulfur on its surface. So this is a geologically hyperactive world in many ways. Here's a picture from the Galileo mission, a, a volcano called Prometheus. You're seeing it now just coming over the limb of the planet. I like this picture because you can see the ice is on the surface. It's good to remember that Io's interior is hot. Its surface is cold. Its surface is exposed to the vacuum of space. It's five astronomical units out, so it's getting five squared or 25 times less sunlight than we get on the Earth. That's 4% of the Earth's sunlight. That's like early evening or late evening, actually. And you can see these things seen as a volcanic plume on the limb. That's how these volcanoes were discovered. They were discovered when Voyager 1 flew past the planet Jupiter in, in the late 1970s. They took deep images of the edges of the moons because they made nice sharp, reach, sharp edges so they could see the background stars. And they would watch as the stars disappeared behind the limb of the moon. You knew where the spacecraft was and you could basically do refined celestial navigation from long range. It was a really cool technique. Well, one of, the, um, one of the scientists who was on the navigation team named Joan Morabita kept noticing that Io had these funny bulges. And first they thought it was an optical illusion. Then she said, hey, man, maybe that's a volcano. The scientists on the imaging team were smacking themselves because they missed completely the volcanic activity on Io, which had been predicted, by the way, by my old undergraduate advisor and one of his students saying, you know, Io's getting a lot of tidal heating. It should probably be molten inside. You should look for volcanoes. And everyone said, yeah, Peter, right, sure. Well... Should have looked for volcanoes. There are four or five of them going off at any given time. When New Horizons passed by the planet Jupiter en route to Pluto in 2007, this is a little movie. You can see one of the plumes going off of a volcano called Svashtar. I think I pronounced that wrong. Uh, over here on the limb. And this is an infrared, thermal infrared picture showing you a combination of volcanic plumes and volcanic hot spots where the remaining lava on the surface is really hot compared to the surrounding ice. This is a thermal infrared camera. And so you can see that Io is just lit up in internal heat, just leaking out all over the place here in the form of, the, of this liquid um, magma, liquid sulfur magma coming up to the surface. So Io is a crazy place. One of my friends actually spends a lot of his time studying the planet, and it's just an amazing place to see what the effects of tidal heating are. But it's not somewhere you're likely to go looking for life. The, there is ISIS there. It's relatively, you know, high, it's very, fairly high density, though. It's a lot of rock. It's a pretty violent environment. It's not some place we might want to think is a good place to look for life in consequence. But it is warm. It's got that energy thing going for it. But it's a bit more complicated because it's really mostly a rocky world. Europa, however, was a really big surprise. Now, from telescopes from the Earth, Europa appears as just a barely resolved bright point. And it was known for a long time that Europa was brighter and shinier than the other moon, Galilean moons. Io was just plain weird. We knew about the sulfur plumes around there, but we didn't know where the sulfur was coming from. But Io, Europa stood out. It was really bright and shiny. Well, when we flew past, the first thing people noticed was, where are all the craters? There aren't any craters on the surface. So there are very few. There's, there's one right there and a couple of old ones around. But it's like a cue ball. This is, in fact, a massively computer-enhanced picture just to get any contrast on the sucker at all. It's really boring looking. It looks like a dirty cue ball. What we find is that the surface is, in fact, composed of bright, very, very shiny water ice. There's very, very few impact craters. Few impact craters means we're looking at a geologically young surface. 
Geologically young in this case means a few tens of millions of years. This is even younger terrain than we find on average on the Earth, where the average terrain is 100 to 200 million years. But we look at the other moons in the system, and they're pummeled to death with craters. So we know this thing has basically been geologically repaved over its history. And it's been repaved by liquid water geysering up through cracks in the surface and then freezing on the surface to fill in the stuff. Water is the lava of Europa. Now, the ice flows looked at in detail. The surface is very fractured, and there are places where we see gigantic ice rafts and we see fl ice flows, signs of pick pieces of ice at one point flowing in some liquid water, which then promptly froze all over the surface. We see chaotic, jumbled terrain, which tells us that the difference between the surface and the deep interior is pretty shallow, maybe only a few kilometers or a few tens of kilometers thick. Here's a close-up of one of these places. This is, this is a, a section of ice rafts on the surface of Europa. This is a, a stunning picture here. The scale here is some of these bigger, smaller rafts here are about a kilometer across. So we're seeing down to tens of meters or hundreds of meters of scale on Galileo and the close passes. Now, if you took this photograph and laid it out alongside a picture of the Arctic ice breaking up at the beginning of the Arctic spring, you would see very similar structures. The big difference is you would be seeing open ocean between the larger rafts instead of frozen ice. This kind of jumbled chaotic terrain tells you you're not just simply geysering up at a single point over a very thick cue ball. You're probably coming up over a thin ice layer, perhaps on top of liquid water. And it was this kind of terrain that was seen by the Galileo spacecraft in particular that really got people's attention. The, the model that's emerged is the question of, is there liquid water under Europa's ice? There are two models. One of them is, in fact, it's ice or just slushy ice all the way down to the inner rock mantle surface. And that distance here could be many hundreds of kilometers, 150, 200 kilometers max. It, it, we really don't know for sure. There are estimates which are still subject to a lot of uncertainty because it's really hard to make the measurements without something like you know, ice penetrating radar or something to do this. But our best estimates based on what we know about the planet, one model is that basically it's all solid ice. If that was it, we'd kind of stop the discussion. But there's a line of evidence that's been getting better over the last few years that it's not in fact solid all the way down to the rocky interior, but in fact it may be liquid just below the surface a couple of kilometers. There's a couple lines of evidence for this. The first of these we've already seen. The moon has a very, very young surface which has been repaved repeatedly over its history. Whenever water comes up from the surface, the cratering rate is not high enough to say, oh, an occasional impact floods. It seems to be very localized. So the water has to be able to transport its way up to the surface. That isn't going to happen if it's frozen all the way down. The there has to be some reservoir of liquid below. The second are these chaotic and flooded terrains that are very strongly suggestive of liquid upwelling, again, from below, flooding the plains out. The ice rafts, the chaotic jumbled terrains. We see those kinds of terrains on the Earth in the Arctic areas both in the Arctic and the Antarctic portions on the ocean. So again, we're drawing an analogy here, but it's an analogy which we have a pretty good experience with. So it's strongly suggestive. It's not proof. One of the interesting ones, there is a very weak magnetic field on, 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 the, planet, on, the, planet, on the moon Europa. Now, reality, I should be more correct. I'm going to say a magnetic field for a class like this, but for those of you who maybe have a little bit more physics background, what it really has is it has a measurable magnetic moment. It means that the magnetic field lines of Jupiter passing through the world are getting their positions altered 
by the fact that there is a very slight magnetic re resistance, a magnetic response of the interior of the planet to the field lines from, from Jupiter's immense magnetic field passing through. The only way you can deflect magnetic fields is if you pass them through a con electrically conductive medium. Water, pure water, is an electrical insulator. The way you make water conductive is you add salts. You basically add ions to it. And so the fact that Jupiter's magnetic field is actually getting altered by its passage through the Europa ice may be, may be suggestive that it's passing through an electrically conductive medium that's flowing and a salty liquid water ocean may be in fact one way you can do that. This is a very powerful argument, but again, it's, it's, there are caveats, but it, we're lining stuff up. Finally, Europa's just a little bit further out from Io. It's engaged in this one to two to four resonance, so it's getting squeezed and stretched by the tides of Jupiter, less so because it's further out. But if you do the calculations of tidal heating, there is sufficient energy in that tidal heating to melt subsurface ice down to a depth of approximately 100 kilometers. So four lines of evidence. The very young surface, the fact that there's chaotic and flooded terrains, which means the break in the surface is not that far below to liquid. That you've got a weak magnetic field, suggesting you have some idea of the composition of the fluid. You've dissolved salts or dissolved ionic salts into the liquid. And final tidal heating, which says you've got enough energy to do the job. All seem to be pointing in the direction that it's very likely that there is a liquid water ocean underneath the surface of Europa's ice. This was a huge surprise. And it immediately lit up everyone's imagination. As one astronomer put it, you know, we've been talking for decades about the possibility of looking for signs of life in Mars's past when it was warm and wet, and right under our noses was Europa where it's wet right now. The only other place in the solar system that has liquid water on its surface, we think, is Europa, the Earth, of course, and, as we'll see tomorrow, the moon Enceladus around Saturn. And the strategy that NASA has been following for years to look for life in the solar system can be called follow the water. If you find liquid water, you found the ideal solvent for carbon chemistry. So is, there, so is there a liquid water surface? Now, this is just all based on the Galileo data. How are we going to know for sure? Well, currently, the planning, is in the planning stage is for a joint United States, European, Japanese, and Russian mission called the Europa-Jupiter System Mission. It was given preliminary approval for phase A work in the last year or so. They're currently planning on a series of missions that will lead to a 2020 launch. So 2020 launch, five, six years to get out there. You can do the math on how old you're going to be. I don't like doing the math on how old I'm going to be. Um, I'll probably be retired, well, I certainly will be retired bef no, after its launch if it actually goes and there aren't any delays. I've never seen a NASA mission without delays. The idea is not for a single spacecraft, but in fact a small armada of spacecraft built by a combination of the U.S. and Europe with additional help from the, from the Russians and Japanese. One of these spacecraft depicted up here, again, these are just sketches for the current concept, carries a large antenna array. The idea is to have ice-penetrating radar to basically shine very high-intensity radio waves into Europa and map out the subsurface stuff. If it's ice all the way down, we'll find it out right away. If it's ice even 10 kilometers down gives way to a 100-kilometer thick ocean, we'll find that out right away, too. That's the first level of reconnaissance. Now, if, in fact, there is liquid water or you want to hedge your bet, well, you know, we're spending, uh, you know, two, three billion dollars to go out there anyway. 
one of the amazingly cool things, which NASA has been testing on frozen lakes underneath Antarctica. There's Lake Vostok, which is more than a kilometer or two below the ice, and it's liquid water, as told by ground penetrating radar and seismic activity, is there's an experiment to build something known as a cryobot. It's basically, it's a ice drill that will drill its way down through up to 10 or 20 kilometers of ice, and then a little hatch opens up and releases a free-floating hydrobot, basically a robotic submarine to examine the undersurface of Europa in this cartoon here. It's actually tethered, as it turns out, to this, because you can't get radio signals through the ice, so you tether up and then transmit back up to the waiting spacecraft that are looking to relay the signals. This is, in fact, the part of the reason why we have suddenly turned our attention very sharply on the moon Europa. Because Europa is probably one of the few places where there is an interesting combination of factors that are the prerequisites for life as we understand it on this planet. So, Europa may be the most promising place we've ever found yet beyond our Earth for searching for life. Let's look at the pieces. There is a source of heat, in this case the tides from Jupiter. It's able to, it looks like there's enough heat in there to keep the oceans underneath the ice liquid. The liquid water beneath the ice, again, another prerequisite for life. Liquid water is the ideal solvent medium for carbon organic chemistry. These things are in the outer solar system, so the place is loaded with organic materials. In fact, we see organic materials everywhere in the outer solar system, and that includes things like amino acids, complex carbon compounds. All of the pieces that we know are the pre chemical prerequisites for life. They don't guarantee that life will arise, but they are the necessary prerequisites for Earth life. You have heat, a source of heat that can provide a source of uh, energy for chemical reactions and perhaps even for metabolism. You have a source of internal heating of the planet that could lead to a low level of volcanism. Volcanism will bring minerals up into the fluid areas and dissolve them in water. That's a source of inorganic minerals. Oxidation of inorganic minerals can in fact lead to what's called chemoautotrophy, which we see in deep sea vents on the Earth. Furthermore, Europa has no atmosphere. It's too small to have an atmosphere. Can't hold on to one, even as far away from the sun as it is from Jupiter. But there's still ultraviolet radiation, and there's a harsh radiation environment of Jupiter's immense magnetic and radiation belts. But that, radi that uh, harsh radiation and UV radiation is stopped cold by a layer of ice and water. So below the ice, you are shielded from not only the ultraviolet radiation of the sun, which is still strong out of Jupiter, but you're shielded from the high-energy particles accelerated by Jupiter's magnetic field, which makes Io completely inhospitable on its surface. In fact, the magnetic field is so strong, it was damaging the electronics on our spacecraft. We hated flying through the strong parts of the field so much, it would probably have taken the spacecraft down if it had lasted long enough in the case of the Galileo spacecraft. There was definite degradation of the onboard electronics by being constantly bombarded by the high-energy radiation belts of Jupiter's magnetic field. That's one hell of a lineup in the requirements for life. It's, it's almost like if you wanted to make up an environment that said, where am I most likely to see life on the prebiotic Earth? Someone once pointed out that except for the tidal heating bit, Liquid water beneath ice, complex organic, shielding due to a layer of ice and water, you've almost described Snowball Earth two and a half billion years ago. The big difference is the internal heat on the Earth came from heat of formation and radioactivity. Here, it's coming from the tidal heating of Jupiter. So if I was to put money on the table as to where we're going to find life elsewhere in the solar system, it's going to be right here. If, if, if there is liquid water underneath the surface of Europa. In fact, what form might that life take? 
Okay, let's get speculative. One way is just let's take this idea of anaerobic life, oxygen-free life, living by chemoautotrophy. So we take minerals, iron, sulfur, abundant in the solar system. We know that for sure, abundant in rock. If there is volcanic vents on Europa, and there are abundant volcanic vents on Io, so we know that this kind of tidal heating can lead to volcanic-like activity. Sulfur compounds, sulfur oxidation is a marvelous source of metabolic energy. We know of a bacteria called sulfobacteria on the Earth that in fact use sulfur oxidation as a source of metabolic energy. So, we have a plausible source of energy and a plausible source of metabolically accessible energy. And so, one of the places you might look and, and dip back a bit to the cryobot cartoon, hydrobot cartoon, notice that their depiction here is of a undersea vent. So one of the things is if, if in fact on Earth life arose probably the first time under the deep oceans on hydrothermal vents, it makes sense that we may be seeing on Europa a recapitulation of that same reemergence of life near hydrothermal vents in an otherwise probably inhospitable surface. Remember, we, we, we are very prejudiced on the Earth to thinking of surface life. Life has only lived on the surface of this planet for the last 400 million, well, less than, less than, a little over 400 million years. The planet is four and a half billion years old. Most of its history, life has been microscopic and been marine. It lives under the water. So that's one of the expectations for Europa. A more interesting idea came up. I haven't put it in notes, but it came up in a paper uh, not too long ago in the period in the scientific literature. Cosmic rays are constantly bombarding everything in the solar system. Cosmic rays are high-energy particles accelerated by exploding stars and other energetic events in the, in, the, in the galaxy. Cosmic rays striking water can penetrate deep through the ice and can break water apart into hydrogen and oxygen and can actually result in oxygenation of the water. The calculation that was done, and I, I don't know enough about the field to be able to go back and say I really believe the calculation or I can confirm it independently, but I'm going to take it at face value is that you might, in fact, lead to significant oxygenation of the water on Europa. It's actually the high-energy particles around, around uh, Jupiter in Jupiter's magnetic field may, in fact, enhance the effect a bit because one of the things that cosmic rays do is they get deflected by magnetic fields. So the idea, and it's pure speculation, is you could actually end up with oxygenated water in the oceans. If there's oxygenated water, that could support oxygen-based metabolism. Well, what happened on Earth when we went from a mostly anaerobic atmosphere through the sluggish or slow accumulation of photosynthesis began to build up oxygen in the atmosphere? These, these extremophile bacteria that we see in the deep ocean events are chemoautotrophs. And chemo, some of them are chemoheterotrophs, but chemoautotrophs. Okay, they basically get the carbon dioxide out of the dissolved water, get their energy from organic oxides. There's no photosynthesis going on because you're too far below the surface to get any sunlight. Deep in Europa, there's no photosynthesis. There's no chemical pathway we know of, this doesn't say we haven't, just because we haven't thought of it, that can make oxygen biotically, at least easily. So photosynthesis is out. Once photosynthesis kicked in on the Earth, the oxygen rate went up in the atmosphere, poisoned the anaerobic bacteria, and eventually, through this process, slow process of evolution, by the time of the beginning of the Cambrian period, 454 million years ago, oxygen was abundant enough in the atmosphere that it enabled oxygen-based metabolism. What happened in the Cambrian? The Cambrian explosion. Large animals, 
were able to begin to evolve because they could tap into high energy metabolism to support large body structures. So, you know, it's nearly the end of the lecture, so one of the speculations is if, in fact, you could get significant cosmic ray caused oxygenation of the oceans, Europa's oceans might not just be places for microscopic extremophiles. There's even a possibility that if you had enough water, you could actually end up with supporting large animal life if it can somehow get started. We don't know. Couple of numbers to conjure with. The total amount of liquid water beneath the surface of Europa could be two times the mass of our own oceans. So there's a lot of water to play with even on a small world. It's had a long time to stay liquid. We know that on the Earth, life emerged once the liquid oceans were formed nearly 100 million years after the emergence of the oceans. So we, our prejudices perhaps may be showing through here. But if I was going to bet anywhere in the solar system, we will find life. It will be in the oceans of Europa beneath the ice. Any questions? One question in the back there. Yeah. I think about arming the cryobots. No, I think the problem with the cryobot is figuring out how to sterilize it so we don't accidentally seed Europa with Earth bacteria. 